everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of Barking from the Rooftops. My name is Jim Gillis. Today we have a very special episode. Joining us today as guest host is the amazing Gillian Boland of Ethical Dog Training. Gillian is a dog trainer and behaviour consultant based in Glasgow, not far from me. We've known each other for several years and she's one of the most respected professionals out there. Gillian's methods focus on addressing the core motivations which drive behaviour and ever-evolving practice which began 20 years ago when studying towards a behavioural psychology degree. So join me in welcoming Gillian to the podcast. Hi Jim, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How's yourself? Really great. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome and I've been really looking forward to today. Um, so so thank you for uh, for joining us. Um, today's guest, Grisha Stewart, is an author, international speaker and a dog trainer who specialises in dog reactivity. She runs Empowered Animals and the Grisha Stewart Online Dog School. She's an author of several books, including her well-known Behaviour Adjustment Training 2.0, New Practical Techniques for Fear, Frustration and Aggression. So join me in welcoming Grisha to the podcast. Hello. Hey, Grisha. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Gillian. Oh, you're most welcome. <laughs> you're most welcome. <laughs> and uh, so so you're, you two guys know each other quite well. And uh, where, where did you first meet, uh, Gillian? Uh, I was lucky enough to have um, admired Grisha from afar for a long time and then she came to Glasgow um, and I got to hang out with her and I guess just an official mentor and friend and colleague and, and hugely generous with her, her big brain and her time. So yeah, just just two souls meet in the right time in the right place. Just lucky. Yeah, it was great. We uh, we got to hang out and talk about dogs and yeah. Jillian was driving me around to, to my seminar and I remember, um, you know, one of the things about Jillian that the public may not know is that she runs her gas tank all the way to empty before she gets gas um, and <laughs> fuel uh, for you guys. And uh, so, <laughs> so we didn't make it. We did not run out of fuel, but uh, there was a it was touch and go for a minute there. Yeah, that's that's a um, that's a theme for my life, I think. <laughs> Great, Jillian, from from knowing you for sure. So, so yeah, Grisha, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, it genuinely is a pleasure. And I wonder if you can maybe start with um, for those who don't know you, I'm, I'm sure people do, but maybe you could just take us through a little bit of background on yourself, uh, Grisha. How did you first get into dog training, and, and maybe that's a good starting point if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. So I've been, I've been training dogs for about twenty years now. Uh, well, professionally, before that, you know, just for my, just for fun with my own dogs. But I started in Seattle uh, in 2001. I had a business called Ahimsa Dog Training, which I ran for about 13 years um, before selling that to a colleague. It was a school where we had about 40 dog training classes a week and, and lots of private sessions as well at the same time. My focus was and is aggression and rehabilitation of uh, issues of fear and such, and then also just socializing puppies. And it's become something that over time is has... Um, taken on more and more of a, a sense of empowerment, so empowering dogs to meet their needs. I was always a positive reinforcement trainer, but um, for the last 15 to 10 to 15 years, it's been really about more empowerment of the animal and meeting their needs. And so uh, yeah, so I'm a Karen Pryor Academy trainer. I have uh, some uh, graduate work in psychology toward a degree with animal behavior, but my main degree is actually in mathematics. I have a master's right. in mathematics and a, a double major of math and German as an undergraduate. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And, and where can people find out more about you, Grisha? You have your own website and that's grishastuart.com. 
that right? Correct. Right. And then I have, a, I have an online school and a store as well. So from grishastore.com, they can go to that. But school.grishastore.com is the main place for the, the online school, which is a, 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 one of the things about the school that I love best is it's a, um, you can buy things individually, but you can also subscribe, which is a really good value for people to get everything that we offer for just a, a low fee. So well, um, amazing it's resources. important to me that education is accessible. So. Sure. There's some amazing resources on there. I would highly recommend that everybody check out that, uh, that school. It's amazing. You also have a YouTube channel as well, uh, Grisha, is that right? I do. I do. Thank you for showing that. Yeah. And uh, so that's actually, I've had that for you know many, many years, but I'm also just about to add some more updates to it uh, with the new dog. So I have a, a Labrador retriever that I got about a week and a half ago uh, named Joey. And he's a black lab, eight month old dog bit crazy and uh, <laughs> want to be and uh, so there'll be more videos of him in the near future oh fantastic so you have your new labrador do you also have other dogs too Grisha? i do i have a, a one other dog named zuki she's a um, a lot of things <laughs> so she's a cocker spaniel toy poodle minpin and chihuahua and then one quarter they did not know what uh, on the dna test and so i usually say unicorn for the other piece. So she's a sweetie and she's not a huge fan of Joey yet, but um, they're getting along. Uh, and like, she's just like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go over here now so that the lab doesn't squish me. Um, <laughs> but he's becoming more and more aware of his body. And so that's helping. And oh, I have a cat. So, oh, wow. Garbando. Yeah. Right. And how's that integration yeah. going with the new dog coming into the household with the cat and the other doing, dog? Doing really great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the most, the things that I work on most in my dog training professionally and at home is just making sure everybody gets along. I don't really care if they can do, you know, bite work or jump on big, tall things or whatever. Like, or I just want them to get along and, and, and be easy in my household. And so we've, uh, I don't know if you can see, he's a black yeah. dog, so I need to get a white couch or something now. <laughs> Um, but, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so he's been, he's been fairly easy to integrate, although he definitely thinks the cat is something of a chase, uh, object. And, uh, so that's toning down quite a bit as well. So that's good. And, and when I got him and he still is actually, cause it was only a week and a half, um, but he's terrified of all kinds of things. Um, so slippery floors, men, women, children, dogs, um, he doesn't. He did not read the lab manual uh, that he's supposed to be socialized <laughs> easily to everything. So um, yeah. Uh, oh, and music. So I'm I'm a musician and I'm in a duo with my life partner. And uh, so the first time we picked up the guitar, Joey's like, "Oh my God, what is that?" And he like ran into the other room Aww. and was terrified by guitar. Bless his heart. So uh, we've been working on music appreciation in the house and. Today, I'm happy to announce that we were able to play a song at almost full volume. So, and he was chewing on his toy. So, grateful audience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, it's not good when the audience runs away. No. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's not a reflection of your music, though, I'm sure. Uh, no, I, I'm, I won't take it personally at all. Yeah. Sure. So, so, so Grisha, you, you have pioneered that. And uh, I'm so grateful that you did because there's so many dogs that through a conduit, both myself and Jillian, that we've helped so many dogs through um, your protocol, um, which is fantastic. So so maybe if we could just start by maybe just giving your definition of BART, how you came up with it and, and, and what it stands for, if you don't mind, Grisha. 
Sure. So BAT is behavior adjustment training, and it's a technique that helps dogs gain confidence and social skills. So it's really about having the freedom to explore something without being allowed to get so close that the dog freaks themselves out. So we're we're using um, the dog's natural desire to to avoid conflict um, by um, you know having them at a distance at which they they can handle the situation easily. And then they, you know, their brain can say, oh, wait, that's actually not something scary. I can do this behavior. I can do this behavior. Um, and so generally what it looks like, it's just a dog looking for a place to pee because we're just kind of following the dog around and the trigger is far at the distance. Um, but we get over time, we get closer and closer. And our job is really just to not let them go beeline in in a straight line toward the trigger, because that usually means the arousal has gone up. Um, and so we're sort of like the the parachute were there to keep their autonomic nervous system from getting too engaged. And then as they are around something in a relaxed state, then pro-social behavior just starts to naturally show up. And easy to describe and just long to do. It's it's a the other name for it is boring adjustment treatment because aggression treatment because it's <laughs> they just are walking around basically not looking aggressive, which is the whole goal. <laughs> Oh. And you've preempted one of my questions already, which is that we kind of want it to be boring, right? We don't want this to be spectacular and something like this. So, so you've already preempted one of my uh, my points. But um, and in terms of how you came up with that, Grisha, um, it has evolved too, I believe, because you started off with the original BAT and that evolved into BAT 2.0. What's the main differences between the two and how did that evolve? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to circle back to your original point, your other question that didn't get asked um, and, and answer something that it might be related in terms of being boring is that it shouldn't be boring for the dog. It could be boring for the person watching it, um, but the dog should have be interested in, you know, checking out the environment and having a good time. So just for Wait, the record. That's so so wonderful and so timely. Today, we, we get so many clients who, um, today I had a lesson that was um, glorious, protocol brilliant, and the dog did nothing. And she said, I just want to see, I want you to see him growl. I want you to see him do, I need you to see him doing it. I'm like, <laughs> that's the opposite of what we're trying to do. So it's, it's, it's just amazing you brought that point up because the whole point is he's not, not going to do that. We're not going to stress him out. Exactly. And and the key is to say, you know, I'm I'm a professional dog trainer. I can see the signs that your dog would be heading toward that aggression. And I know what aggression looks like. I yeah. don't need to see the car run into the building to know that the car might run into the building. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't need to test the seatbelts that way. We just need to know that they, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so to back to the question Jim asked in terms of BAT 2.0 from 1.0, it's uh, definitely evolved over time. And that's something I said right from the beginning that it, it would. Um, I, I'm not a recipe follower, even, even my own recipes. Um, so I'm always kind of tweaking things and looking for ways to improve and also, as I traveled around the world teaching the bat seminars, people would ask me questions and I would, you know, ponder and think of, of answers. And, and, it, and it helps that the technique evolve over time. Um, and then also just doing lots and lots of bat work uh, over time as well. And so we, at the beginning, I didn't really, um, I didn't even, like the leash was was six feet long. I just used like a normal, you know, regular two meter leash. And, um, you know, walk the dogs in a straight line toward the trigger to a point that I um, knew that they would be able to be interested, but but disengage. Um, so walk them to that point, wait for disengagement, 
mark that disengagement and then move away. Um, and so the, there's a similarity in the sense that we were looking for dogs to notice the trigger, calm down and move on. Um, but I was still sort of stuck in um, this idea that I was training the dog. I was getting him to do skills that I could reinforce versus what BAT 2.0 is. It's a naturally occurring reinforcement that happens. So as they disengage, the the, the situation itself is reinforcing for the behavior. And um, so I took a sabbatical between 1.0 and 2.0. I, every year I take a month off in December uh, and work on my business and think about some aspects of what I do, but take everything else off the table. So I don't see clients. I don't do emails. I just um, do, you know, I research, I read, I go swimming in the ocean, like whatever, you know, and just like get my brain into a different place. And, and so that year, the sabbatical was uh, reading lots of research articles on stress and arousal and, and working on, uh, on ways that humans uh, work on um, phobias and and then lot, looking at a lot of videos of bat setups, and it, it was sort of there was a moment when I was teaching an instructor's course where these people had been through a two day seminar, they'd been through a five day course, and they were still putting dogs over threshold on day five, and I thought something is wrong. It's either the way I'm teaching it or what I'm teaching, and and so the question then was how can we keep the situation more below threshold. And then the answer that I came up with was something that simplified the technique, but then also made it way easier to keep dogs below threshold. Um, and so the key was that moment of going to a place where the dog is interested and then marking, the marker is reinforcing for the human. So the humans were then reinforced for taking the dog to threshold over and over and over again. Um, and that little piece of excitement, and yes, they did it. And, and so the key was then to take that out. We still have that in, in mark and move. There's some times when that's useful, um, but to have that not be the key focus of that. Um, and so allow, to allow the process to be more dog driven. Um, and then, yeah, and then, sorry to keep chatting, but looking at the um, videos of the dogs, noticing that the moment that they, before they started barking or lunging or whatever, um, that straight spine was really the key giveaway. And so that's the easiest piece for people to notice that their dog's going over the threshold is they're walking right at the trigger. Mm -hmm. So that's when we do a slow stop or we do a curve or somehow get mm -hmm. them out of there. That's great information. And I wanted to talk about thresholds anyway. Um, and, and in BAT, um, I guess maybe if you could take through some of the signs, you mentioned a straight spine there. And in, in, in BAT, are you working under threshold or on the periphery, you know, we want some awareness of, of, of the trigger, right? I think you describe it as a, mm -hmm. as a low threshold, as somewhere where there's an awareness of that trigger, but not overexposed. And what sort of signs are you looking for at that point, uh, Grisha? Mm -hmm. So I definitely want to make sure that they're, they know that the trigger is there and that there's some curiosity and some awareness of it, right? So if we're working all the way across the field and they don't even know the child is in the vicinity, then we're kind of wasting our time. Um, however, if we're too close and, and it's very hard for the dog to disengage, we're, we're not just wasting our time, we're making it worse because now there's a, a pattern in the brain of, I see something and I'm scared, right? So we want it to be at enough of a distance that it's like, okay, I checked it out, no big deal. And so within a couple of seconds, usually that they can disengage. And that's different for different dogs. Some dogs take more time to process information. And so it may be, you know, three seconds or four seconds before they disengage. 
but they're still below threshold. Um, but we want to make sure that their their breathing is is relatively um, you know normal for their outdoor breathing. It, we may see it get slightly faster and then calm down again. Um, but we want time in between those moments. Um, and so if it's just like back to back, the dog keeps going back to the trigger, we're too close. Um, so if it's, you know, like a 45 seconds apart or a minute apart, then we're probably somewhere in the right range um, in terms of, of distance. So. Sure. And some of the other markers could be things like if a dog normally responds to their name, for example, and stops stops responding, or if they get grabby mm-hmm. with food rewards. or a, Right. Too uh, close get, for all those. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And those are the markers that people can look out for around triggers. That If your dog is normally responsive and then stops responding, then you could maybe think that dog's over threshold to a trigger in their environment and can be used as a right. gauge to, for sure. And, and and in those setups, you use specific equipment, Grisha. So you're a big proponent of using long lines, which which I am too. And, and, and they're such a fantastic revelation. It sounds simple to be able to use a longer line, doesn't it? But it's maybe something, even today, a case where this has made a massive improvement, <clears throat> where a dog is working on a multi-clip training lead, double-clipped, and it's about a metre of space, which is not a lot mm-hmm. to manoeuvre in, right? Particularly if you're encountering triggers, we put it, put the dog in a five meter and almost instantly started to behave normally, behave those natural behaviors started to present themselves. So can you take us through, you know, your kind of setups from, from that point of view, you use long line harness, would you say, uh, Grisha? Mm-hmm. I do. And I'm going to circle back before I forget as well. So in terms of the, <coughs> excuse me, as of a being a, uh, checking for threshold with, with a cue or with treats, we don't usually use a lot of those in bat. And so you might be sort of specifically using it to check, or if you think you're over threshold and you're prompting them away, um, then that would be, you know, a, a moment that you might be using treats. So we, at least in terms of a setup, we tend to not be using a lot of treats out on a walk. Of course, you might be using more. So just for survival. Um, but yeah, back to equipment and hi, Anna. Uh, so back to equipment. Um, Yes, I love using round leashes, so uh, five meters long, 15 feet, and um, that's about the length that I've found that most people can really handle reeling in the leash easily, and so a little bit longer, unless they're horse trainers, uh, (laughs) they're not not great at it. Yeah, exactly, and then it's underneath the dog, it's underneath them, it's um, and, uh, round and soft is ideal. Um, but whatever works for you and for your hands is fine. Um, and then, um, a harness that's well-fitted. So a white harness, uh, usually I attach in the back. I might attach in the back and the front if I really need, um, to have a little bit more control of that. And then recently I've started using, um, for some dogs. So for the bigger dogs that might be a little harder to control, uh, something I developed called the leash belay which is using rock climbing gear to be able to handle dogs that are bigger. And I, so when I developed it, I, I only had my small dogs and then, you know, some clients and stuff. And so, but it's, I now have a lab and I'm like, oh my God, this is so much easier. And I'm super happy. I'm going to share some videos on my Facebook at some point today. Hi, Denise. Hi, Frank. So, yeah. So I can tell more about that if you want. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that for sure, for sure. But the equipment is so important is that, that we're using equipment which helps our dogs feel a sense of freedom and control. And uh, Yeah, so the, and the control is really like the humans need to feel like we can control their safety um, and how close they get to the trigger or whether they go into the street. 
that sort of thing. And then the, the freedom is what the dog is craving. So there's this balance between those two pieces. Uh, when I first got Joey last week, I was, so they, they, she took him out on a collar and, her, and leash, a six foot leash, and was, you know, trying to greet Zuki that way. And <clears throat> he's pulling and choking and it was just, you know, obnoxious on him. And so then I'm like, well, let's try putting this gear on. And so we put a harness on him, put a, the long light line. And he was like, <sighs> like his whole body just relaxed. And, and he was way better body language toward her. Um, very easy to redirect him. My body was able to relax relative to the handler who had him before, because it's very easy for me to be able to control him on a 15 foot leash with a harness. It was very difficult for her with the collar because they're just in this constant mm -hmm. yanking each other. So. It's like a battle, isn't it? It's almost like a yeah. battle. Yeah. And I mean, for one thing, he's like, you know, he's three and a half feet long. And so there's like not very much maneuver space in a six foot leash, right? So he's like, he's longer than half the leash. So. I was going to say, um, uh, Grisha, there's, there's for, for people at home that are, are regular clients, people with dogs that are not dog trainers, I think it's worth clarifying, but you, you're likely going to lead into this when we talk about the, the belay technique, but it's it's maybe notable just to let people know that um, a long line is not the same as a retractable or a flexi, and, and you know very well the, right. it might be interesting for you to tell people about the, the main yes. difference is in why we're not recommending retractables for this type of work. Sure. I can talk about that. And also I just, uh, the direction I thought you were going to say, which is that you don't just like hold on to the end of the leash and now yes. they're 15 feet away from you dragging you. Right. Yeah. So you'll stay problem, but more distance. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of really specific skills that we teach to explain that. Um, and so if you're local, um, Jillian can can share that with you, and uh, but basically the the idea is that we want to be able to mostly have the dog right around us, and then if they need to go out to sniff a tree or whatever, um, that they can, and so we let the line out for that. The difference between a flexi and and a regular leash is well, there's a lot of them. One of them is that um, with a flexi or a retractable leash, there's always pressure on the leash itself in order to be able to have that spring action. So the dog's always walking on a tight lead. And so their sensitivity level goes way down and, and we don't want that. The other thing is that we want to be able to um, have two points of contact in order to make it so we have a stronger grip if we need to. And for a flexi, if you're just holding onto the handle, they can pull that out of your hand and then it chases the dog down the street. I've actually seen this many times. <laughs> um, and, and of course, holding onto it with two hands is harder. If you do, the, the only time that I might use a flexi is if someone's having a harder time um, with, you know, getting the bows and, you know, getting the leash sort of reeled in appropriately is to have a flexi, but to have a glove and have the tape like a flexi. So it's got like a leash, actually, not just the wire. And so you can hold it so that it is loose all the time. Um, so you can handle it as if it's this kind of long line. Uh, but just, yeah, definitely not the way that it comes out of the box at the store where you're just like holding on and pushing that little button. Yeah, the trigger. Yeah. And what do you recommend lengthwise then for, for starting off with, with bat setups? Do you have specific lengths? I use a five meter myself, which I find is quite easy to work with, yep. it's not too, too long. Would you recommend fives or do you go longer than that in some circumstances? Uh, pretty much, well, 
uh, so very rarely do I go longer, but five is pretty much what I do. Um, so 15 feet for the folks in, in feet. And, uh, yeah, it's basically, um, like I might go like a 10 foot or so three meter lead if people are having a hard time kind of reeling in. Um, the other might be a longer lead if the dog is afraid of them. Uh, so if it's a new rescue to them, then I might use a, a longer lead, um, you know, six, seven meters in order to just give a little bit more space from the human. Sure. And, and it is such an important point. A lead seems like just a piece of equipment, but it has a lot of consequences for dogs, natural social behavior, right? And, and there's been such mm -hmm. a big change in the environment with us having to keep them on lead mo most of the time. And evolution hasn't really caught up yet in terms of that and, and may not do for a long time. The impact on their social behavior, I tend to find, is something that will drive, if we call it reactive behavior. Is that, is that something you would agree with as a lead being like a barrier to control? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a, I went to a, a conference in Brazil, and I'm trying to remember the name of the presenter, but he spoke about going to Kosovo and watching the street dogs there and recognizing that there was no aggression because there was space and there was time. So dogs would navigate around each other. They would, you know, they would look at each other. They might stare, but then they would turn and go the various directions. They didn't need to get into fights because they had time to negotiate between each other if they needed it. And they had time to, or space to be able to leave. Um, so yeah, and that's basically what bat affords dogs is space and time. So we teach people to be really patient with not just, um, you know, letting the dog sniff something briefly and then moving them away. Um, but that really it's about the dog, it's their walk. And certainly sometimes we need them into a heel position and we're going to give treats for them being beside us and we get to transport mode, but a bul the bulk of our walks and the bulk and certainly all of our bat setups is really this this mode of exploration from the dog. So they're, um, they're getting a lot more of their needs met. And balancing that with um, safety prevention and management, right? There may be mm -hmm. circumstances where a five meter lead may not be appropriate, like pavement walking, for Absolutely. example. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what, sorry, what was your example? Yeah. So, so maybe if you have a dog that's double clipped with a multi-clip training lead, you've taken essentially a two meter lead and then halved it. It's not a lot uh -huh. of space for a dog to maneuver in, but it's super safe from a handling point of view. And and I, mm -hmm. and I wonder if we could just give maybe give some examples of where you might want to ensure that safety prevention and management, but in setups, mm -hmm. you want that more freedom to enact normal dog-like behavior. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I tend to I tend to try to get my clients to the point where they can handle with a long line wherever, because okay. then at a moment's notice, they can let the dog have more leash. So I usually tie a knot in the long line about uh, two thirds of a meter from the dog, from the handle. And so they can grab the, the knot as a sort of a traffic lead. So if they need to be able to get through something, um, if the dog were to lunge, it wouldn't slip or whatever. So that's that's kind of the close grabbing point. And then the rest of the time, then be able to let the line out. Um, so, yeah. That's the main thing. I don't. I don't tend to switch back and forth between a really short lead and a long one, um, but definitely there are some clients that they can't handle all of the lead, and so we go to a short one for a while. Um, but as soon as they get it, it's actually way easier to do the long line. So, and there's some physical aspects to that too, I suppose, isn't there? Depending on size of dog, size of handler, mm -hmm. that type of thing, we want to ensure a little bit more safety and management on that front. Could you? Yeah, could you, yeah, for sure. But um, generally, you would use a five meter line under mm -hmm. all circumstances then and, and tie that knot in it so you have an extra safety 
Yeah. And, and maybe like when I'm having dogs greet kind of at the, that moment, if I'm, if I'm doing a, a setup and I'm getting to the point of greeting, um, I might often switch to a shorter, you know, like a two meter lead at that point. So that if the lead needs to drop and they move around each other or something, you know, we've got, we've got the possibility of passing the lead off very quickly. Um, the goal is to keep it from, ta- you know, tangling. And um, most of the time when they're at that point already, though, I can, um, I can have the one dog, like the, the helper dog or the stooge dog be off lead with a good recall. And then the student dog we're working with is still on a lead. So, and then eventually then both dogs off lead. There's a muzzle in there at some point, depending on whether it's necessary. Um, but just always, you know, putting whatever safety into play that we need to. Sure, sure. And, and that kind of leads us nicely on to um, some of the reward um, structure in your protocol, which is focused mas- mainly on functional rewards, um, uh, Grisha, mm-hmm. which confused me, uh, I must admit, um, myself initially. Um, where I think I mistook it for potentially negative reinforcement, where mm-hmm. you're working at a distance, we're removing that dog, and I made that mistake of of kind of, of going down that pathway. But it's not that at all, really. That will happen in the environment, whether we want it to or not, right? But I right, guess- exactly. And it may be, you know, it may be there as they move on, they may be escaping. It may be just that they're interested in something else. We don't know. Um, but if we don't give it to them, the ability to move away you know, in some sort of like trainery debate over negative reinforcement, then we're actually being more cruel. Like dogs need to be able to get away from something if they're uncomfortable, like full stop. So yeah. Yeah, Uh, But yeah, so functional reinforcers are basically um, whatever is like, what's the function of the behavior? What are they doing the behavior for? What are they trying to get? So for example, when I move my hand over here and I squeeze on my cup, right? The function is so that the cup will come over closer to me, right? So if I squeeze the cup and I got a treat every time, that would be okay, but I'm still thirsty, right? <laughs> so so, um, so that's the idea is that we're, we're looking for, you know, why are they doing the behavior in the first place? And then making sure that they have appropriate behaviors in order to get that, right? So if my attempt at getting the cup was like each time that I was thirsty, I smacked you, right? Then like, you're like, um, I could teach you this way easier way to get the water, which is to go reach your hand over here, squeeze and and bring it here. And so by teaching them more, um, like just sort of the ways that normal quote dogs, um, would get those consequences, um, then it's easier for everybody. Um, and so with, with bat, right. Aggression, frustration, um, the barking has some, something to do or the biting or whatever, has something to do with a social reinforcer, right? So either the, the object comes closer, they get to go closer, they scare somebody away. Um, and so these these social reinforcers are, are what they're working for. And so by working at a distance where they, they can choose behaviors that are more socially appropriate, they rehearse them and they realize, oh wait, that even works at 15 meters away. Oh wait, that still works at 10 meters away. And so we're expanding their um, the places that they try those pro-social behaviors. Sure. And you made that. And we're problem. never making them stay in any particular place, which I think is maybe the fear of, that people have with with um, when they heard the concept of maybe there's some negative reinforcement in there that we're like making them stay until they give the right behavior, and then we're we're going to reinforce them. Um, it was yeah, it was never that. Yeah, and it's maybe some element of flooding too, which which I made that mistake. Um, right, right, right. And you were yeah, yeah, you weren't the only one, but yeah, fortunately Gosh. enough, 
people figured it out that it, it took off. So, yeah, for yeah. sure. But you made some really valuable points there. And if we do take away the ability to increase distance from our dogs, if we take away flight, what is really left from an option point of view? And, and you, you made a really good point there about the function of behavior, that all of these behaviors have function and goal. For our dogs, we may not think they do, but for our animals, they absolutely have function. Every behavior has a goal. And if that goal is to increase distance and we take away that ability, what options are really left for our dogs, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. And I see dogs that are uh, that are being trained in very positive ways, right, with, with positive reinforcement, but they're actually, the human is basically keeping them there and feeding them while they're close to something very scary. And so they're put in a conflict situation where they actually do want to be farther away. They're willing to take the treats. This is like, this is what's available to them, but the dog would do so much better if they were to move away and then get the treat. So that's my, my take is that even positive reinforcement can sometimes miss the mark and not meet the needs of the animal. Yeah, for sure. They could learn about food leads them into scary situations and maybe just stop Mm -hmm. taking the food entirely, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, there was a few steps in that process that that you sort of mentioned there, uh, Grisha, and and I think you mentioned in your book that you have kind of five basic points in those setups that you're kind of of looking for from your choice point to engage with the trigger at a safe distance, wait for the appropriate behaviour. And that appropriate behaviour I'd like to talk about in terms of what you're looking for there you're then marking that with a verbal marker, the functional reward of moving away, and then the bonus reward of being praised or given food or or whatever they find reinforcing at that point. Is that mm-hmm. a fair summary of a, of a bat setup? Is that what you're looking to achieve? Uh, so that's um, that's for mark and move. So that's one variation of the bat setup. The ideal... Um, so let me answer that in two different ways. So yes, for mark and move. And um, in terms of waiting, making sure that people know that while we're waiting for an appropriate behavior, we're not waiting through barking, lunging, growling. We're waiting for just the dog to be looking for a while until they decide to move on. So if we see aggression escalating or fear escalating, we're, we're going to get out of there. So call the dog and move away rather than you know going through that, that peak of, of fear. So that's one thing. Um, and then, but the main bat setups actually are just um, moving around, waiting for the dog to, like we're following the dog essentially until they start to head in a straight line toward the trigger. We At that point, we slow stop so we don't let the dog get closer, allow them to have a chance to to look away and move on, and then we follow them again. So our ideal bat setup would mostly just be the dog meandering around the space um, but definitely there are times when we, like when we get very close, um, then that's when the version that you described, the mark and move, then, uh, so we do that for maybe like 20 treats worth. And then we go back to this kind of follow your dog version of 2.0. What I really like about it is it kind of taps into the, the kind of ethological way of viewing animal behavior. You're taking a bit more of a passive role, right? <clears throat> and the dog's able to express normal social dog behavior right under natural exactly. which is why i love it i think in in i say traditional because it's not that long ago we're talking about obedience behaviors and downstays and walk to heel around dogs and doing all those sort of proofing behaviors whereas what i love about back 2.0 is that you're tapping into that ethological model right you're allowing them that social behavior is that a fair way of looking at it Grisha? Mm-hmm. yes and i love that that phrasing so tapping into the ethological model yes i'm going to use that 
See, I had the wonderful Kim, Kim Brophy on, on the podcast uh, not long ago. Talking I was about thinking of Kim. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. And, and she really um, elucidated us fantastically well. It's really elevated my, uh, my my training of thinking about things differently because we're constantly evolving, right? And uh, and then I guess that's what was superb about moving from bat 1.0 to 2.0 was that kind of evolution and progression forwards is what it feels like, Grisha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I if I were to tie it into human behavior so there's there are types of of ways that we deal with human um like human phobias to for example to to really it's, it's very controlling like we come up with here's my alternate thought and and it's like we're trying to control the mind and instead if like and yes there are times when that's helpful and um by we're really working on mindfulness in general so pausing, you know, inserting a pause between stimulus and response in our own minds, then that border collie in our heads can calm down. And and so we don't have to be as controlling of our emotions. We can observe our emotions. We can watch what they're doing without getting sucked into them. So that actually has a really nice um, tie into the way that, that you can deal with your own emotions as well. So Love that. That's fantastic. And there's, uh, excuse me, potentially another subject that we can talk about there because Jillian and I are both into mindfulness um, and and using meditation too. And that's a lovely little uh, example you gave there, uh, Grisha, of just kind of being in the moment with with your dog of in between, as you say, in between that stimulus response. It's such a lovely way of looking at it and bringing ourselves into that moment, but also our dogs too, right? Mm -hmm. I always see that. When, I, when I'm talking to clients with this this stuff, Grisha, we're quoting you by, I, I always say it's a, it's a yoga retreat or training as a yoga retreat, not a boot camp. <laughs> nice. I love it. When you're with your dog, that's that's the walk is a yoga retreat. You're, it's you're a right. yoga retreat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, I, I mean, I think there's, a, there's an appeal for dog training because a lot of dog training came out of like military and, you know, post-World War II, a lot of then, you know, people came out of that as now, well, now I'm a dog trainer and now I'll go into business for myself. <laughs> so a lot of the sort of traditional training actually came from, you know, just, you know, a century ago or half, you know, three quarters of a century ago. And, um, and so that mindset isn't necessarily um, the way to encourage wellness. Um, it's, it's more about obedience, right. About getting people to shut up and getting dogs to shut up and getting, you know, making people or making dogs do what you want. And, and that's something that the whole species has been evolving into doing better with, uh, the human species. And so not the whole species, but good chunk of us. Um, (laughs) and and so I have faith that that we're all evolving and, um, and that the way we treat our dogs is really important. And, and so if, you know, I can, I sometimes see this really, this, this split where um, I went into someone's house and I uh, was there to, to get, you know, work on a bunch of stuff. And one of the things was they asked me about an electric fence and, you know, what do you think about a, a shock fence? And I'm like, so, you know, we've talked for at least two sessions at this point. And I'm like, what do you think I'm going to think about this? Um, but anyway, and like I and and while I'm looking at at their house, right, and I'm seeing where they want the fence to be, and then there's this like statue of like 
Guan Yin and Buddha, like just like right there. And then the shot color fencing <laughs> proposal. And I'm just like, um, so let me let me explain how these two things, like the bridge from this behavior to this behavior, and there and like this would not be consistent with your beliefs. And they yeah. were like, oh my God. Yes. So yeah. I think sometimes we 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 compartmentalize and put our dog training in a very different place. Uh, and, and think, you know, people think that it's necessary for dogs, uh, to, to use force in these ways. And it just isn't. But you, you had a, a background in Buddhism, Grisha, did, I, did I hear that right? Um, yeah. Um, if, I would say if, if I'm anything, I'm a Buddhist. Um, so it's sort of a choose your own adventure spirituality, but a lot of it draws from Buddhism. Good stuff. So, so maybe if we could take a little bit of a step back into the the kind of back setups and, and what we're talking about with the particularly around the the functional rewards, which I'm keen to understand more about myself um, in terms of what we're looking for. I think such a big uh-huh. component of back two point is that I feel thing to say that functional rewards are really important in those setups. Can you maybe give us just some examples of what those functional rewards look like, just so that we can spot them and then and then use them in our setups? Mm-hmm. So. So here's the thing is that with BAT 2.0, the functional rewards, their understanding it is is key and they're almost always just sort of happening without us. Like it's, it's the naturally occurring functional rewards that are happening now. Um, so, um, but let's say in the mark and move variation where it's, um, where we are specifically providing a reinforcer. So in that one, you know, the, the dog engages with the trigger, they disengage, we mark, we move away, and we might give a treat or we might just praise. That movement away is the functional reinforcer. So the idea is that dogs were showing the aggression in order to get space or distance between them and the trigger. And so we're providing that space by moving them away. Or we might move the trigger away as as an alternate. Um, But functional rewards also come in really handy in, in lots of other training and by doing that in those other spaces, we're also teaching the dogs that their behavior um, works, that, that they, they have an effectiveness. So there's some predictability and controllability for them. Um, so, for example, they might be jumping up in order to get your attention or they might be jumping up in order to, um, uh, let's say, to get you to throw a toy. There, like there may be another, you know, a number of reasons why they might be jumping up. And so if we just reinforce anti-jump, you know, four paws on the floor with treats, then we're not meeting the actual need that they were trying to achieve. Um, And so we kind of experiment with, well, what if I give you this? Is that more of what you were looking for? Or what if I give you this? Um, And so that's our way, one way of doing a functional analysis. That's great. And um, that that kind of, or, or maybe I got this right, is that that evolved through through cat, then lat, then it kind of evolved through that that whole kind of paradigm. Did I, did I get that right? Or I think uh, so lat, so before lat was a thing, it, it, it was, or was really, um, was uh, really operationalized. Uh, it was something that most of us were kind of doing to some extent anyway. Um, so Leslie did a really great job of making it very organized and then also pre- doing some pre-training of looking at things uh, that were not the trigger. So teaching a cue of look at that. Um, so what I was doing more of um, pre, like before before I discovered CAT, um, was just clicking for looking at the trigger and then, you know, moving on and giving more treats as we went. So, um, or doing setups where it was click for looking at the trigger. 
And I'm just going to grab some stuffed toys here because um, I can. So, um, all right. So if this is this is our student dog. So we were doing lots of, you know, click for look at the trigger, give a treat and just staying in position. Right. And then, you know, maybe we move away eventually. But the idea was that the trigger was coming closer and closer, still getting treats right from me. Um, and so that was working fairly well. Like lots of clients got to the point where, you know, dogs were easy, you know, controllable. Um, and certainly some of them got to the point of friendliness with their, their triggers. Um, when I was working with my own dog, Peanut, that was not enough for him. So he was, he was, um, he looked great if we were in working mode. So he would be like, okay, mom, am I getting treats? Am I getting treats? And even if I wasn't giving treats and I was just praising, he would be fine. Um, but the moment that I wasn't like, he was off the clock and I said, all done. He was back to like, holy cow. I didn't even notice you were here. Go away. Right. And so, um, and so I was like, well, I need something else. And that's when I encountered the cat protocol, which, um, so the version at the time was basically that the dog, um, the dog was, <clears throat> was tethered and then the trigger would approach the dog would then, you know, bark and lunge for a while. And then when they stopped, you would then remove the trigger, right? So you would be, that was a very specific negative reinforcement protocol with a, a lot of flooding. Um, and so I was like, but there's something to this. Like, I, I don't like the barking part, but there's something to this. So the very first time I kind of did it exactly like they said, and then, you know, he disengaged, took the trigger away. Um, and I saw progress, but I was like, that didn't seem really healthy for him. And it seemed like not good for the other helper either. Right. Um, and so I, I, but I continued with cat, but I filmed it and looking back, I didn't continue with cat for very long. So I was like, well, what if I, peanut wasn't tethered anymore? What if he was able to move? <laughs> and so then pretty soon it was like, you know, well, what if peanut could move away as soon as he wanted to? And then I was like, well, what if they were really far away? So he didn't bark at all, but then, then he could still turn away. Um, and so that was one of the ingredients. Um, so cat was part of it. The something like, look at that was part of it. Just regular clicker training. Um, <clears throat> just lots of different, you know, ways of training were sort of blended in whatever I knew went into this, um, some T-touch in terms of the leash handling. Um, and, and so that's eventually where BAT 1.0 came in. And what I love about the transition from BAT 1.0 to 2.0 is that food's kind of taken out of the training process, right? So we're not really using treats apart from maybe at the point where maybe dogs disengaged and came back to us, we can then kind of strengthen that with a you know food reward. But it's not necessarily built into the protocol. So this is great for dogs that maybe have issues with food in, in arousal states or don't take food. That's what I loved about it is we could recommend this to, to clients that for, for all of them generally, but certainly for those dogs who aren't particularly either food motivated or are complications with food. And that's what I love. Right. About Otherwise it. it might be resource guarding the food to make it sort of worse. <coughs> um, yeah. And well, so I would say to some extent food was, was removed. I would say bat 1.0 didn't have that much food either, which is I think why people in the positive reinforcement community got so confused as to why, well, if there's not food, then it must be bad. Um, and, uh, but the main thing that's changed between 1.0 and 2.0 is the using the longer leash. So more freedom, these really specific leash skills, um, and the not walking directly at the trigger. 
So because that definitely that was a piece in Bat 1.0 that I absolutely removed was this idea that we know where to take the dog to and we're going to walk the dog to that and stop. Um, so ironically, if you look at, um, uh, so click to calm looks a lot more like um, Bat 1.0 now and click to calm was one of the ingredients in 1.0. Um, so she's added movement to her protocol, which is that piece I really, really love is the, the addition of movement. Um, I think, you know, the more we can have dogs moving in our protocols, the better. Um, and the longer version of what I'm talking about in terms of the evolution of 1.0 to 2.0, I'm actually going to be teaching in the Aggression in Dogs conference. So that's coming up in two weeks, I think, or a week and a half, I fly to Chicago to Maybe. teach that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Great. that's going to be, my, my talk will be in there. So, ah, yeah. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. But how, how, I wonder how much uh, our dogs are, are, are suffering from the context that you exactly mentioned there. You know, being in a short lead, walking on pavements, walking towards another dog, and then expecting that dog, those dog, to walk past each other without without any conflict, given that they can't escape that situation, and they're walking head on into another dog, and um, and that's such a regular context. It would be very normal for people for dogs that would really really struggle under those conditions. Mm -hmm. And I and I think to some extent, COVID has really helped. Um, I think people are way more aware from a distance <laughs> as to whether they're going to to walk right past each other or go in an arc around, right? I think COVID's been really useful for that. Sure. So. It's useful for something. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think, Jean, what you said, um, and, and Grisha, your, your points there about um, the, the stress in the environment and having that decision made sooner, COVID or otherwise, from a dog's perspective, we've covered that that's amazing. But from a handler perspective, that's really wonderful too. Because what you've done is you've taken the stress out of normal dog owners walking down the street and thinking, oh my God, there's a dog coming. I'm in this pavement um, or I'm in this confined space. And they get stressy and their handling changes and they're in this, this trauma. Right, they tighten up the lead and the dog's like, oh no, now I can't breathe. So I guess. Uh, so for both yeah. of them, for, for, for right. a dog handler. They, they, they're both the pressure is immediately off so neither of them are in this situation of this this hotbed um, right exactly and knowing what to do sooner is yeah. always useful and rehearsing it absolutely. Uh, having a plan absolutely you know that was that exact case earlier today that i had and um, with a little staff staff was a bull terrier and, and the owner was so worried and so panicked <laughs> that the first thing she would do is pull the dog in tight yeah. and you could visibly see him starting to get more fearful right he's getting more scared she's tensing up he's tensing up and this has been ongoing for well he's now six so for for many years this has been the handling style and it's no wonder that he's stressed he's under duress you know he can't escape that situation so what was wonderful about earlier today was alleviating that alleviating that burden and allowing him to express normal and natural behavior and it was like a revolution you know he walked fantastically well in a loose lead he encountered triggers he walked right by them and it, it's just that those subtle changes right but Sometimes I guess it's the human expectation of our dogs rather than yes, our dogs. Hold on. So speaking of that natural situations, so the dog and the big dog and the cat have walked in. Azuki is now guarding the cat and telling the lab not to jump on her, <laughs> on him, uh, which is really nice actually. So good job, mama dog. All right. Yeah. So I guess sometimes it's maybe about the, the other end of the lead that, that sometimes we need to work with too in terms of handling style and also perception. You know, I tend to find that the, the human's expectations of our dogs 
are widely out of sync with the reality of, of the situation. And adjusting that can have a really positive effect on that dog's welfare, right? And the person too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I think, I mean, we're just, we're not born knowing, um, you know, what our, what dogs will do and what normal is. So for example, just the other day we were on the beach and um, uh, Joey was, we, it was a horse beach. And so there was like, you know, horses had been there, there's horse droppings and Joey thinks it's delicious. And, uh, and my uh, fiance was like, it's so weird that he wants to eat all the poop. I'm like, no, it's that's not weird. <laughs> it would have been weird if you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To us, it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. To us, it's weird. But it's yeah, such an so. important point, and it is something that can be a barrier to making progress in a case is where you have that kind of human expectation of how a dog should behave on lead, and that comes culturally, right? That's a cultural fog, as as, as Susan mm-hmm. Friedman would, uh, would describe. Right. About exactly. It. Love that phrase. Yeah. And you know, and yeah. and of course, we can train things you know if, if there's something that we're like okay i really don't want to eat the poop then let's train that um you know and we can we can teach dogs to walk more and heal past other dogs but not perfectly like i mean we certainly could get to a perfect point but uh, a lot of times that's not in the dog's best interest and so mm-hmm. it's our job to actually arc around and that's part of being a good caregiver yeah so. It's a great example. It's actually something I saw a post that you shared on Facebook about something about healing, about moving away from that obedience mindset. Because what what function does that behavior provide for our for our dogs? Right, nice for mm-hmm. us, pleasant for our dogs to be walking one pace off the right hand side, looking at us. But what function does that provide for for our dogs? Right, and if right, we, it's really a function for a human. Right, we're we're lacking in control in our regular life, and so we need to show the world that we have control over our dogs. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that that term "control" is such a loaded term, isn't it? It, it really yeah. is something that um, is is very problematic. I totally totally agree with that. But but alleviating that is sometimes a revelation when you show somebody that there's a different way, right? That you can mm-hmm. demonstrate, you know, a, a low stress handling technique which just makes the dog welfare improve. And demonstrating that it can sometimes be a revelation for these people, right? Absolutely. Sorry, I'm just enamored of this cat. So it's hypnotic. I would do the five second rule, but I'm pretty sure that that he's is interested because he's squished into my hand. It's lovely. And, and anyway. just, does, does that work for you know kind of all of the emotional responses that we'd see in our dogs, whether that's fear? frustration, potential anger too. Does does Bart work in all of these um, um, emotions, would you say? Yeah, it does. I would say fear is probably the easiest one to work through in those, um, but it definitely works in, in all of the situations. Um, it even works for predation to some extent, although in that case, I would be using more um, of a functional reinforcer. So if they're, you know, they're wanting to chase after a squirrel, then it would be, you know, using a replacement reinforcer that's very similar to the predation. So they're coming and playing tug or they're chasing a, you know, whip toy or whatever. Um, so you're using something that's a reinforcer that's similar to their original reinforcer that they were getting, um, but with mark and move. So, and that's similar kind of to, um, so Simone Muller took, basically looked at bat and some other tools and that, and her predation substitute training is one of the um, sort of offshoots of, of bat, I would say in terms of being able to get, allow the dog so a chance to, to sniff and look at things and then get um, a reinforcer that works better for them and better for the squirrels. <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. Absolutely. <laughs> what or about, Steve or whatever it is. 
Sure. What about the frustration side? Because that's something that I see a lot in dogs, particularly where they have that barrier to control and I will coin an insight. Tom Candy, who who I heard that term from originally, which I think is a great term for, for being on lead because they can't express that natural, normal behaviour. Can you react- say that phrase again? A barrier to control. Uh, no, no, something about candy? Oh, Tom Candy, yeah. Oh, the name. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, Tom Candy came up with that term. He did a IWBC seminar and it was all on frustration elicited behaviour, which I found uh-huh. super interesting because we can sometimes mistake frustration for aggression, right? And sometimes it right. can be and translate into aggression, but the motivation is different, right, Grisha, where mm-hmm. you the dog's trying to decrease distance to that target. And I wonder how how back can help that um, if a dog wants to decrease distance and what functional rewards would you use under those conditions? Gotcha. So, so again, with the bat 2.0, it's, it's whatever direction they move next is tends to be the reinforcer. So they're automatically getting the right functional reinforcer when they've, they've, they've been given more control over the, over the process. Um, however, I also do with dogs who are more frustrated more um, zigzag mark and move. Um, So we're basically marking, moving lateral to the trigger and then reinforcing and then follow the dog again. So if if you're the trigger, so we, we, they're engaging. When they disengage, I mark. So I click, for example, click, move a treat this way or go walk this way, give a treat. And so then they sort of approach again. They disengage. Yes, move this way. And so gradually they're zigzagging their way up to the trigger. Um, and so that's way better for dogs who are more frustrated than just moving away. They don't want to move away. They want to move closer. But if we just move closer in a straight line, then arousal goes too high. So the zigzag is really nice for that. Oh, that's great. Because if, if we do prevent access to something that that dog thing is reinforcing, the more that we prevent access to it, maybe the higher value that reinforcer will take on. And, and I wonder if, if moving away for that dog, if we mistake it for you know, fear-based and is frustration elicited, um, what sort of markers would you look for there? How could a normal dog guardian, for example, spot the signs between, and it can be subtle, you mentioned in your book about the combination of, of emotions and the conflict between between the two you spoke about that earlier. How can dog guardians spot those signs, do you think, between fear and frustration elicited behavior? Mm-hmm. So one thing is the, the tone of the barking. So it tends to be more of a high-pitched um, bark when they're more frustrated. Um, you're also looking at the um, just the direction of movement. So if it's more fear-based, they tend to bark forward and then bounce away. Um, if it's frustration or or more anger, then they would both of those are kind of forward moving. Um, you can test with a fake dog. Um, don't uh, go down and sort of be with the fake dog, but you can let them go up to a fake dog and see what they would do and see how what happens with that behavior. A lot of times there are, there are people who think their dog wants to kill another dog. And when they get up there, they're like, oh, thank God, can you play yeah. with me? Um, so that's one thing. Although I don't use fake dogs as much anymore, um, just because that if at one point we were having humans sort of move the fake dogs around. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a person that was doing that. And um, it was it turned out that the dog had issues with people as well, which he didn't realize. And the dog bit him. So we don't do that. Um, or I, don't, I don't advise that anymore. Um, the other, let's see. Yeah, it's, it's really like um, if you start moving away and the dog ends up getting worse as you're going away, that's another sign that it's probably frustration related. Um, I'm just taking a little claw out of my dog, my cat's uh, fur. 
<laughs> it must have gotten in a scrap out in the world. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So, but the key is like, it's the regular version of Bat 2.0 where you're doing the wandering walks is it's built in. So whatever the reinforcer is, they'll get it. Um, it's not like that 1.0 where you had to know, do I walk forward or do I walk away? Which is part of the simplification of the protocol. So, um, it can be very addicting to want to give a reinforcer. Um, so to switch back into mark and move as much as possible, but to don't do that, um, is the key. <laughs> so, uh, there's, something it, there, um, there's something there, Chris, just for you saying it, taking the food out of that environment can be really helpful for people. I think people get so caught up on the timing of delivering that food. And if you take that moving part out of a session, it, it gives them permission just to watch their dog. Right, exactly. I love that, Jillian. Yeah, that's a good point. And also their breathing is re more relaxed, yeah. right? If they're not waiting for like the one moment where they're supposed yeah. to click or yeah. what they're supposed to do. Um, yeah. But yeah, so just simplifying it as much as possible. Yeah. You also talked in your book, uh, Grisha, something I wanted to mention was about the kind of magnet effect, which I thought was a great term. Uh -huh. um, you know, kind of sucked into that vortex of having like a trigger over there and kind of that magnet effect. Do you mind just um, explaining what, what you meant by that? Just everybody? Sure, I could do that. And and we're getting close to the hour. So I'm going to wrap it up soon if you if you don't. Um, so, um, but so the magnet effect is basically the, the once, so if they're at a distance, the dogs can sort of act like normal dogs and move away or closer or whatever. Um, but there's some sort of threshold after which when they get into that distance, that that particular dog will then feel like they have to act. They have to go forward in order to communicate something that escape or movement away is no longer an option. Um, and so a lot of times people think that their dog only wants to go forward, but if they were working another five meters or 10 meters away or 50 meters away, um, then they would be really at a point where their dog can offer totally different behaviors. Um, so if you're finding that you're sucked in toward the trigger, the dog is just beelining there, you're probably way too close. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, all, all good points you make, and I appreciate we've we went over an hour now, so we've, we've probably taken up enough of your time, Grisha. And it is, uh... <laughs> I do enjoy it, but I, I got I got a school to run oh, on you my side. Person, don't, worry. <laughs> don't worry, you're a busy yeah. person. And, and we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to, to speak to us. So we'll maybe bring it to a natural conclusion there, but there's maybe some topics for future for us to discuss. Okay. Thank you so much, Jim. This has been lovely. And it's great much. to see you, Jillian. You too. Yay. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye -bye. Thanks, guys.